Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey guys, it's Mike and Davina, and welcome to yet another episode of the Master Your Mix podcast. I'm really excited for this episode. I think we've got a lot of great information in here. But before we dive into that, I very quickly want to mention that as of the time of this recording, I've just released a brand new ebook that's available on my website. It's called 60 Lessons Every Mixing Engineer Must Know. And it's a compilation of lessons both in life and in the studio that not only have I learned myself personally, but that I've also learned through my interviews with many other successful mixing engineers. And it's full of a lot of those aha moments and a lot of those big ah crap moments that we all experience throughout our careers. And as we learn those things, we can train our minds to go into autopilot mode so that we can work faster, smarter, much more efficiently, and so that we can become better mixing engineers in general. And so this book is basically just meant to compile a lot of those different lessons and experiences so that you can learn faster and develop your skills and your studio business and all of that stuff much faster. So if you're interested in getting a copy, visit the website. It's masteryourmix.com forward slash 60 lessons ebook, and you can download your copy there. So now moving on to this week's interview, I'm chatting with Dan Weston, who is a mixing and mastering engineer who has worked with artists such as Kevin Gates, Flowrider, Shad, Classified, and many more. He got his start originally working with a lot of rock bands, but he's since kind of moved a little bit more towards the hip-hop realm. And in this conversation, he shares a lot of awesome tips. We discuss his hybrid mixing style that was inspired by Michael Brower. We chat about mixing vocals to two-track instrumentals. He shares some tips for managing 808s and hip-hop and a whole bunch of other great information on just working fast in general and reducing how much we second-guess ourselves in the studio. So I think it's a really great conversation. You're going to learn a ton from it. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get started. So Dan, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, man. Happy to be here. Awesome. So for people who might not be familiar with who you are, can you give us a little bit of background on who you are, what you do, how you got into mixing? Yeah. Um, I'm Dan Weston, and I mix right now, and I master records and albums. And I started off more in the engineering production realm at first, and that would have been probably 10 years ago or maybe a little bit longer than that. Kind of started off recording local bands at my high school, and... Uh, you know, that was more in the, like, hardcore metal, you know, scene around Toronto in the in the mid-2000s, I'd say. And that kind of progressed into some opportunities with a few record labels and then in the mixing world with hip-hop stuff. And, yeah, it's kind of progressed from there. It's been, I'm trying to think, the first, the first full-length album that I produced, engineered, and mixed, like, professionally... Um, was probably around 2005, 2006. So we've been going at it for a bit. Cool. And what made you first start getting into mixing? Uh, the, the transition into mixing, I don't know. I, I was always really fascinated with that part. And, and it sort of seemed like, uh, for lack of a better term, that's where the like rock stars of engineering were. You know, it's like, it's the, to me, it's the trickiest part. And it still seems like the trickiest part. And it's just, uh, I don't know, where so many things can can come together and, just an exciting part of that process for me. Do you play any instruments? Yeah, none well at all, but <laughs> I do play a few. I grew up playing drums. That was like my first love for music was definitely playing drums. And uh, I mean, even since I was a kid, I was like, I played drums on pots and pans till my parents got me like a little shitty drum kit type thing. And, you know, played in the bad bands that I will not tell you the names of. <laughs> For sure. Um, yeah, and then I even took like bass as a kid in, in school, and uh, I played a little bit of guitar, but I, I really like, there's no way I would ever attempt to jam with someone guitar or anything like that. And same thing with piano, I can, I can get by. I've even played on a few records, but I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> Straight up. So, so how, with, your, with your loose knowledge of how to play some instruments, how do you feel that that's had an impact on the work you do? Yeah, play, playing instruments has had a big impact, I think even subconsciously having that perspective of the musician in mind 
kind of, you know, makes you give certain things a bit more love. And it really depends what instrument you gravitate towards. And I think especially in mixing, you can kind of tell what instrument that that mixer may have played based on what they push in their mixes, right? So usually it seems like it's a drums or guitar type situation, but um, there's a lot of mixers who grew up playing drums, and I don't know why that's a thing, but it's it's something about the sense of rhythm and, and more importantly, the sense of impact and how that drives a mix seems pretty important. So I'm really grateful that that was the instrument that I did choose because... Like if your drums sound like shit, then the mix is probably bad. Yeah, it's definitely one of the hardest instruments to mix, right? Mm-hmm. In the same breath, when I'm mixing like a really guitar-heavy record and I feel like I may not know what I'm doing, I'm like, oh man, I wish I played guitar and I would know <laughs> why this was fucking wrong right now. <laughs> you know? Yeah, for sure. So you recently moved studios, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I was at uh, I was at Joe's place, Joe Carvalho, great master engineer. He has a B room attached to his facility, and I was in there for a while. Um, he just built some new rooms, actually. But uh, I was looking for a bit more space, like just just in terms of square footage. Um, and I found a room that's probably two or three times the size. So, yeah, I decided to, to go there and try that out. And I just wanted a bit more room for my speakers to breathe, kind of. I don't know if it has something to do with it. The, the studio I was at before Joe was calling it a studio is kind of a stretch. It was a like gigantic open warehouse with a bunch of shoes in it. And like to most people, if they were to see it, they'd be like, what could you possibly do in here? That's, you know, going to make sense. But somehow I got used to it. And I think the size of that warehouse was so big that for one, the, like the reverb sound of that space hit you so much later and wasn't as loud as you would think that it, my brain it wasn't like affected by it that much. You know what I mean? Like it, it really was so, there was no early reflections coming at me from anywhere. And then also, um, so much of the problem in, in normal sized or smaller, you know, studios is the bottom end and low frequencies bouncing around and, uh, standing waves and, you know, room modes and things like that. This space was so big that all those problems would be below 20 Hertz. You know what I mean? So if there's a room, it's a standing wave at five hertz like it really doesn't matter so in terms of that it was also pretty ruler flat so i think going from such a huge space to a small room i just i was looking for something a little bit more in between yeah and so now you have that yeah for the time being i don't like it's fairly untreated and i've done a little bit in there it's translating really well for me um and i've been i've been mastering in there with good results and obviously when you're mastering like you want something pretty accurate that you can, you know, feel is translating with, with small details. So yeah, it's been good so far. Ideally somewhere down the line, I'd like to build something that really suits my needs and sit down with a, you know, acoustician or room designer and get exactly what I want, but I'm not quite there yet. What kind of, uh, what kind of gear are you using these days? It's a hybrid setup usually for mixing. Uh, got two distressors, which are, a super versatile compressor, like, you know, regardless of what genre you're working in, they're, they're just amazing and, and great value too. Uh, what else? A couple of API EQs, the API 550A. I'm usually using them for kind of like a top end boost. Um, I guess I'll, I'll explain in a minute how I use them all together in the hybrid setup. Um, Spring Reverb, Orbin, don't know i want to say like 110b or something it's it's amazing to anyone if if you're thinking about reverb at all and you're not happy you should buy one it's so crazy good and they're like 800 bucks maybe a thousand bucks which one was that again it's an orbin spring reverb i want to say i want to say 110b but i'll take a look and and find it it's uh really really great if you're working in any kind of like indie music or uh acoustic type stuff it's like such a lush deep verb that you the like plugins don't come close to quite yet and even like the left and right information are so unrelated to each other that it doesn't even matter like you could flip the phase on one side it's still just ridiculous cool yeah that one's good um i recently bought the phoenix 
uh, or no, sorry, Thermionic Culture Phoenix Compressor, which is kind of a big purchase for me. And it's been really cool. It's been great on drum buses. It's good on the master bus. I use it a lot if I'm mastering other people's projects and I want to kind of get some level or, or saturate things a bit. And I'm not, I'm usually not actually compressing with it like 99, almost 100% of the time, the needles aren't moving. It's just the sound of the unit and kind of how it can be overdriven that, that I really liked. And I feel like I'm missing. The fourth thing, am I? No, I think that's it. I think that's there's like a couple odds and ends. There's a DBX compressor that never gets used. There's like an Aphex thing that's sitting on a lamp somewhere. But those <laughs> like those three or four things are what gets used most of the time. Cool. And so you're you're running that in conjunction with a bunch of plugins and Pro Tools or something? Yeah, yeah. the uh, The way I have it set up, like ninety percent, even more than that, of the work is done with plugins. And uh, the way the way I'm using those pieces of hardware when I'm mixing is kind of like a system that I implemented from Michael Brower when I did a conference with him in Paris, actually no, south of France. And it, his his system called Browerize is like all over the internet at this point. If you want to check it out, and he's using sets of compressors for buses to kind of blend different. Uh, amounts of compression from different compressors to to accumulate this big sound so it's a little bit confusing without you know going into his pages and stuff i think it's even on his website the way i'm doing it so i have four stereo buses that go out of my d to a and to hardware and then come back in and one of them is just a straight up loop so it goes out of the d to a right back into the A to D. There's nothing happening on it. So I start off with all my elements sent to that loop, which is unaffected. The second one is the pair of distressors. So channels three and four are both distressors. Channels five and six are the API EQ with a bunch of top end added to it. And then seven and eight would be the Phoenix compressor. So hopefully this doesn't get too confusing. Um, I'm sending all those elements to, to bus one and two, which is unaffected, and I send certain elements that I want the flavor of those other pieces on to those other buses. So let's say I start to work on the drums or the vocal, and I want a bunch of top end on it. Rather than add, you know, plug-in top end if I need a lot, I'll start by send just adding sends to Pro Tools to that to that bus that has the APIs with like the top end jacked 15 dB or something. And I'll start sending to those so that that those big broad strokes of top end are added with hardware instead of software. Does that make sense? Yeah. So are you are you running it like in parallel with your output from one and two kind of thing? Exactly. Everything's running in parallel. So there's parallel compression with the distressors and the Phoenix, and uh, parallel EQ with the API. Got it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like it it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes I might just send the entire drum bus to the Phoenix or something entirely to the distressor, or maybe oftentimes we'll open up rough mixes today if, if someone's like making a pop track and the producer has a bunch of stuff going on. It's so close to where you'd want to have it that like it doesn't make sense to completely reimagine all this stuff with hardware or anything else. So I'm like just kind of breaking it down, making it bigger. You know, I that's my initial setup, but it's I don't. It's definitely not a rule or anything. If, yeah. if I don't use it, I'm just as happy. It's cool. That's very cool. It's mm -hmm. a cool approach. I like that a lot. What um, What's your mindset when you go into a mix? How How or where do you start normally? I always I always listen to the rough mix first, and and sometimes you have to insist to get one, you know, like against people's wishes. But without it, I really can't start. And I I tell people that because I want like a I want to hear where people left off, where they thought the vibe was feeling good and get, you know, I want that to be my first impression is the rough mix. And that way, while I'm listening to the rough mix, I'll have the session open and I'm just kind of looking at a few things. And in the last like 10 tracks or 10 channels of the mix is probably the stuff I have. Like maybe it's those buses, maybe it's a couple sends I have set up for reverbs or delays. 
in the comments of those channels, I'm writing down some of my like initial thoughts of the rough mix that are striking me, like maybe something that I think sounds really good or, you know, one of my objectives and something I'd like to change. It could be, you know, oh, wow, the bottom end sounds amazing. Like, let's not lose that or the vocals cool, but really needs to be opened up in like, you know, an entirely different way or, or much more focused in the mid range. And it's pretty seldom I end up looking at those notes, but I think just writing it down helps me remember during the mix, like what I'm, what I'm trying to do, at least what my thought was there in that way. When I do get into the mix or when I think it's in a good place, I can just think about those thoughts or check out the notes and, and make sure that I didn't get too lost. Or if I'm like, wow, the vocal's so much brighter than what they had. Like, is this a good idea? You know, you know, maybe I checked through my notes and it says the vocal's way too dark for this song. So it's like, okay, that that's that is something I thought was happening. Um, but anyway, so after after I do listen through the rough mix, maybe once or twice and, and get the vibe from there, I'll just, just start playing the session and see like what element grabs me first. Sometimes it's like, let's sort out the drums in solo and see how they feel. And I know that's how a lot of mixers begin, but I don't know if I do that. I think it's kind of whatever the main musical element is, like the hook of that song, it could be, a synth or a loop or you know drum loop or pad or something like that i'll just start to work with those things and kind of you know get the feel for it and, and start making changes and see where that goes and just from there the drums are going to come in you know sooner than later because that's where a lot of things happen but yeah so you mentioned earlier that you started off by doing a lot of like metal and the hardcore stuff Mm -hmm. um, and now it seems like you're you're focusing a lot more on a lot of the hip hop stuff. It seems that way, yeah, yeah, yeah. It does. So, what would you say the differences are in terms of how you approach those different styles with mixing? You still follow the same starting point, it sounds like. Yeah, totally. the uh, The mindset's the same, you know. Like the, I think when you're mixing or even mastering, like you're, well, maybe I guess more mixing, you're you're, you know, searching for you know, the feeling and spirit of the song and trying to embellish it at the very least protect that feeling, right? Whatever, whatever message or emotion that song's trying to convey, you're trying to get to the root of that and, and emphasize it. So, you know, that's not a technical thought or like a plugin. So, but that doesn't change regardless of what I'm working on. So there was like a whole new skill set or plug-in wise making that switch and even the way like you approach bus compression or certain things rock music and guitar music that you know metal stuff is like you have to pack so much in the mid-range to to make it work that it's really it's difficult and the less i do it like the more difficult i find it as where hip-hop's so much about the bottom end and that you know the low octave and making that work and you have a bit more you have a bit more space to play as soon as there's not like guitars pan left and right that are fucking screaming you have an entire canvas to you know paint in which is kind of fun uh so yeah i don't know let less bus compression there are a lot of hip-hop songs i mix where there's nothing on the bus at all there are some where you have to go crazy but especially now with like EDM and trap and hip hop all kind of cross contaminating. It's definitely back to more compression, but I, it's, I guess I just use less of like the classic SSL type bus compression that you're going to find in a lot of rock and metal records. Cool. Yeah. I don't know if that helped at all. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So one thing that I know a lot of people have asked me through my website is that when they're working on mixes for hip hop, they often end up with, only like a stereo instrumental track and then a bunch of vocal layers with the caliber of artists that you're working with. Is that something that you still see happening? And if so, how do you approach those mixes differently than when you have the individual tracks for each instrument? Mm. People usually send me stems. So it's not often that I have to work over just a two track instrumental with vocals, but it does happen. Usually the, the vocal session and the artist recorded over just the beat. And then I get sent the stems that have been arranged and 
sometimes they don't sound like what the beat sounded like at all, which can be like really frustrating. Um, trying to match the sound that they have in the two track because you don't really know what they were using, right? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it was like FL Studio has a pretty distinct sound, especially when it's hit hard. It's really difficult to emulate in Pro Tools. So you kind of have to like try different tricks and overdrive certain things and maybe clip the drums or whatever, whatever. But there has been projects where I've liked the two track better and I couldn't get to it. Like I couldn't, I couldn't figure out what they did or it was sitting a certain way or hitting a bus compressor or something where I was like, let's just use the two track. And if it's good, it sounds fine, you know, but that that's where you're like, your job just becomes adapting the vocals to that sound. So you're kind of painted into a corner, but if it's a good corner, then who all cares? <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Like this one dude, Arthur MacArthur, his hip-hop producer, is really, really good. Notoriously, his two-track instrumentals sound fucking amazing. So it's just like, man, just send me that. Like, <laughs> it's not going to get better. Not, I'm not going to do anything better than that. You know? Yep, for sure. Well, they, they, if they take all the time to, to make that, stereo mix for you essentially then it's usually yeah. kind of what they've envisioned for it right yeah and it depends everyone has different skill sets right and and like not every producer can mix or has a has that kind of talent some of them really don't but uh you get people who who do and it's it sounds fine it sounds really good like look at dead mouse for example like why would he have someone else mix or master his shit it sounds pretty fucking incredible so what does he have to gain he has everything to lose (laughs) (laughs) yeah fair enough (laughs) yeah (laughs) but that's that's really unique like he's you know what i mean most people can't do it front to back for sure so in your opinion then what makes a great mix in the end for me the, the great mix just conveys the song properly and you know that can mean a lot of things but if if you walk away liking that song or it made you feel something, maybe it made you dance, maybe it made you sad, maybe it made you pissed off. But if if the that's all, you know, mixing and even mastering, mastering is obviously more on the technical side, but they're just they're just tools to make the music better, right? So I think people get a little sidetracked or a little too focused on making things sound better. And for me, like a mix is a hundred percent based on feeling just what, what are we going to use these tools? You know, how are we going to use these tools to make the song feel even better? So that's a good mix, which keeps the guidelines super wide, but like I could listen to mixes and genres that sound so different, but if i like what I'm feeling or, you know, and, and in that case, like what I'm hearing, I really don't care what happened yeah if it sounds you know weird for sure that makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. so how long does it normally take you to finish a mix depends man like sometimes if things go well it could be like two three four hours or maybe five hours and that's like if there are no hiccups that's probably a realistic timeline which you would think like wow that's fast but it doesn't happen that often there's usually some some part where you you know, start to second guess, which I really try to avoid, but you know, I'm sure the people listening can appreciate at any level, like there is that second guessing, especially when, you know, maybe the rough mix sounds this way, or, you know, someone's pointed you to a reference that sounds that way. But the, the more you can stay out of that second guessing mind frame, you're, you know, you're winning. But yeah, I'd say on average, it's probably like four, five hours. But if, if, things could go for two days where I don't finish a mix because there's something that's bothering me or, you know, rather than fix a mix that I don't like, I'm way quicker to just start over. Like there could be once a week, there's a song I probably mix twice, Hmm. but it's like, you know, you can scrape the burnt edge off of burnt toast, but it's a lot easier to just like get new toast and fucking start over. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. (laughs) It's it's a hard thing to do. And even I've done it like a million times. It's still hard for me to admit that, you know, this mix isn't working and start over. But you get so much better at it where you're like 20 minutes into the new mix. You're like, okay, yeah, this is better than the one I was fucking with all yesterday. Yeah. So just 
just bail. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any tips for like how to overcome that second guessing or like when, when is the point that you decide, okay, you know what? I just need to restart this. Yeah. It's, it's something I'm working on every day. And, and in terms of avoiding that space, that mindset, I like to work fast. You know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not a super technical person. So I'm working on the things that feel good and adding other things in. And if they feel good, cool, I'll move on to the next thing. But I, I'm not like the kind of person who sits with a kick drum and, you know, goes fishing for frequencies they don't like in solo and like spending half an hour on that. And, if, you know, there, I know friends who do that and it works for them, but it doesn't work for me because I quickly just lose sight of whatever I'm doing, especially in context of the song. So I move like fast, faster almost than I'm comfortable with just to keep, I want to, I want to finish. I want to have the mix kind of finish itself before I have time to get in that overly critical self-conscious, you know, is this shit? Should I do that? If you can like not rush, but if you can get through that stage and have something that feels really good and you're like, I think this is pretty close. Then you can move on to that stage and start being more critical. But if you start off that way right from the beginning, it's really hard to keep moving, you know? Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I think too many people just fixate on those little elements and then they've just completely lost track or lost sight of what the end end result should be. Totally. Yeah. And even I can even tell when I get like that because if, if I've been working on a mix for too long, I'd start to hear that little shit more and start to fixate on it and then inevitably I'll you know I'll I'll fix every little sonic detail that was bothering me you know keep going over it and then eventually I'm like oh, something's not I'm not moving the same way or something's wrong and I'll go back to the mix you know from a few hours before somewhere in the session backup files and I'm like ah oh, fuck this is better when you know when I wasn't thinking about all this so it's tricky in terms of knowing when to start over I don't know. I still, I don't have a good answer for that. It's kind of like a feeling, I guess, when you, if you feel like you just admit to yourself, if you feel like you've missed the point and something doesn't feel right and you're making small changes and it's still just not feeling right, the, the best thing might just to open the original session again. You know what I mean? Especially if you have, if you think now that you've been through the song and experienced all the different instruments and elements and you have a better understanding of where you want it to go, but you don't like where you're at with this one it, it could make the second go around take half the time it would have anyway because you know what your your objectives are at least in your mind that's cool that makes a lot of sense so how do you know then when you're done a mix for me it's like when you sit back and you don't know what to do you know that's a good sign that you're probably pretty close to finished and then maybe there's like a a delay thing you want to try or like some automation you get to those details so as soon as I don't know what to do with like the big picture of the mix that I'm developing, I'll, I'll move on to that and I'll put the mix on a way smaller like computer stereo that's kind of behind me and uh, it's going to show you big picture stuff and you know automation type stuff or like is, is this part boring. So as soon as I feel like I don't know what to do with the overall big picture that's coming out of my speakers, I'll move over to that and start to kind of work on the finer details or anything I'm hearing there. And if, you know, after however many passes, if I don't feel like I know what to do there, I'll throw in the headphones. Maybe there's like some weird shit happening with the vocals. There's always like pops and clicks or, you know, the ending of the song has like some dude yelling and the drum takes or whatever. And yeah, as soon as I don't know what to do, send. <laughs> That's a good idea. Mm. Yeah. And it, and I think I don't I don't know about you but I, I think the idea of like sending it almost immediately tends to work out better than like if you just have it sitting on your computer for that extra day that you can listen back to it like you just start to second guess yourself even more the 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 more time you give yourself to second guess yourself the worse it gets it seems totally I'm in that in that exact hell right now actually because I last night I was rushing home to do something and the mix was so close and I was like, I, I could or would send this, but there's definitely like just a couple of delay details and stuff they had that I want to make sure I keep. So I'm going to go in there today and inevitably fuck with it for two hours and then revert back to the exact same one, put those little things on <laughs> and send it. I already know that's what's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> there's really like, there's really something to be said for that, that first 
perspective and letting, you know, letting those, your right brain, that's the right brain, right? Or left brain, which one is it? Uh, yeah, I don't, can't remember. <laughs> I think it's the right brain. <laughs> you know, letting, letting yourself go on autopilot and kind of following your instincts is, is so much more powerful, such an asset that you have rather than, you know, trying to treat it like a fucking spreadsheet or something and, and figure it out, you know, using the frequencies and mathematics, at least for me. It's like if you can if you can use that kind of creative burst and, and insight to just finish it quickly, you're going to save yourself so much trouble in the long run. For sure. Even like I, I'm not a good songwriter, but when I attempted it, that that idea like oh you know what this song's good maybe i'll come back and finish the rest later is like almost everyone knows really stupid if you can you know what i mean like if if you're in a creative mindset in the in the right place for that song at the time you may never get it back yeah you just lose again you just lose sight of what your end goal is right yeah exactly so you were talking about adding embellishments to mixes um aside from the normal cleanup of making tracks sound nice and clear uh, how do you normally go about making those creative moves and mixing? Is it just something you save for the end of a mix or is it something that uh, just you do kind of just when the moment strikes? Yeah, I think when the moment strikes, you know, if you, it could be like early on in the mix process, if I hear a vocal line that in my head I hear, you know, like a huge distorted reverb or delay after, I, I'll just do it right when I hear it so I can, the same thing, get that idea out because it's going to be, probably going to turn out cooler you know when it's in your head than something you want to kind of do later um a lot of them i'll do near the end you know when it is time to do the automation and the the lower level listening and really focusing on the details you kind of start to assess maybe this part it's like a little boring maybe we could do something either vocally or chop a part of the instrumental out for a second or maybe this transition is a little lacking when it's going into the choruses or something we could really emphasize and those, a lot of those embellishments, I would say, come you know towards the end, unless I think of them right at the beginning. Yeah. Is there anything you like to do with your mixes that other people might think you're crazy for doing? Hmm. No, I'm pretty vanilla. Uh, <laughs> let me think. <laughs> Any like crazy effect chains or anything like that that you like to add? You know, one thing I've been messing with recently, and I thought about posting a YouTube video. I'm sure there's already one out there, given how many people you know talk about this stuff, but. I've had fun doing it regardless. Using delays, like delay auxes, and instead of using the feedback on the delay processor, just sending that channel back into itself, which is the same thing, right? Yeah. But it gives you a bit more control because when you send that channel back into its own delay feed, whatever whatever processing you have on that channel is going to keep being induced into the feedback so let's say you have a simple quarter note delay but there's also a little bit of distortion and a low pass filter and some reverb well so the the first repeat of that's gonna be right a little more distorted a little more pushback filtered the second repeat's gonna go through that whole process again and be more reverb more distorted more filtered and sometimes i'll even pan it so you have this this delay that has a lot of movement, like every every repeat is a little panned more left and more reverbed, and it's just it can be a cool effect rather than just okay H delay cool, <laughs> you know? Yep. Uh, I'm trying to think what else might be interesting. I think I'm really especially boring on the master bus because people send me stuff, and it's like they ran out of fucking plug-in slots on the the master bus so they had to make an aux so they could put more like which is more than 10 and sometimes there'll be like one on mine which is just an imager you know so i'm like is this right am i maybe i'm the fucked up one i don't even know anymore yeah, yeah for sure so you said that you've been doing this for quite a while now at what point did you feel like you started to make really good mixes i honestly don't i really don't <laughs> I, there'll be a, there'll be the occasional one where I'm like I think I fucking nailed that one, and uh, you know the feedback, the feedback is good because because sometimes you'll think you nailed one and people that can either it goes one of two ways. There's no middle ground when you think you've like reinvented something. People are either like holy fuck this is amazing, or like this is not what we were thinking about 
at all. <laughs> but I don't know. I, I still, I mean, I think I'm a good mixer, but it's mixing is like harrowing, man. It's just fucking, it's tough. I think it kind of goes back to the, what I was saying about doing it as fast as you can. It's like on a really good mix where it, where it came together really fast for me. I don't know exactly what I did. And even to the point where I come back the next day and I'll play it before I kind of start whatever I'm doing that day. And I'll be like, wow, this sounds really fucking cool. Like this doesn't even sound like me. I barely remember doing this. And that's usually where you've captured something pretty cool. So yeah, I think feedback is important in any, in any, you know, career. But when you get an email back from someone, especially if it's like a big A&R guy, saying you know you fucking murdered that thank you so much it's like that that's when you're like okay i'm doing it (laughs) (laughs) that makes a lot of sense i don't know i wish i could sit back and say yeah when 2010 i started loving my mixes but it's just not true fair enough right that that customer satisfaction is always the most important thing at the end of the day anyway right yeah plus in in mixing there's like there's a lot of ego checks, right? There's you're just never gonna get every mix that's put on your plate. There's test mixes and there's people using a few mixers, especially I think the the higher you go up, like the more you start working with different record labels and like stateside stuff, they're gonna try a few people and if it's not working out and you're not the right guy for that song or that project, uh, you know, they'll cut you loose. But they'll still hire you again. And it's not it's not just at this level, like if you talk to those A&R guys or managers, it's happening to Manny, it's happening to Serban, like they probably lose a song once a week. And when I, I even talked to Manny about it because I, I met him and he's like, man, it used to bother me for a month and then it used to bother me for a week. And he's like, it bothers me for like five minutes now and then I just fucking move on. So it's something you just kind of have to manage. Fair enough. In terms of when you start your mixes, do you have a certain approach for gain staging? I don't really. I'm, I've never been like a this goes at minus six type person. I started Nuendo. It was more forgiving. Like nothing ever clipped, no matter. Like you could have every meter lit up completely red and sounded fine. And there was lovely peaks on the master if you turned it down. And Pro Tools doesn't seem quite as like that. If If I notice everything gets too hot, there is something that, you know, I don't know what plugins being clipped or maybe like some channels are doing something weird. I, I'm not smart enough to know, but I, I try to keep at the beginning of my mix, I have the master fader absolutely cranked. Like it's plus 12 and that way I'm mixing into that and I'm being conservative with the faders because there's so much gain on the end. So anytime I see the level creeping up, I can just bring that master fader down and in effect, I should be like keeping the levels going into the master fader somewhat modest. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes sense for sure. What about with getting the low end right, especially because you're doing a lot of hip hop stuff? Do you have any tips for doing that? Yeah, um, a good listening environment goes a long way, you know, and, and low end so hard to sort out, and especially in small rooms that you, you figure out what kind of treatment you need or if you have a subwoofer. Is it in the right spot in the room? Like, do the songs that you love the sound of in your car or outside or at the club or whatever, do they sound in your room like you think they should, you know? Like, does the bass move you that way? Does it, does it hit you a way that you can make sense of? Because if it doesn't, then how are you supposed to, if you follow your instincts, maybe it's not going to translate, right? Mm-hmm. So, first and foremost, that, I suppose. And then... Yeah, other than that, you gotta you gotta sort it out, and it, it can be tricky with some 808s and stuff like that come in all kinds of shapes and sizes, and sometimes they're perfect, and you don't have to do anything. You know, it's like the notes are even; it sits perfectly with the kick, and it's fine. Other times, it's like I think you have to compress this 808, or at least find a way to level it out. And compressing an 808 is like usually kind of a nightmare because it's gonna rob it of a lot of its impact and kind of like phase punchiness so or maybe you have one that's really dynamic and you need to flatline it and there's you know a few ways to do that i really like the lo-fi plugin in pro tools and i'll use that a lot in 808s to kind of 
drive more harmonic com uh, harmonic content into it, but also just to kind of level it out a bit. Yeah, it's a cool plugin. I like, like it a lot. No, yeah, I'll just you know distortion up, saturation up, and see if I can find a happy place where it's doing something cool. On occasion, I'll even get the bits down to like five, which just sounds like fucking white noise. But then I'll mm-hmm. I'll low pass that afterwards to take out all that high stuff that I've added in. And it's like the bottom end can be pretty fucking crazy. Awesome. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. So we all learn from trial and error and making mistakes in the studio. Do you have any examples of something that's gone like completely wrong in a session or just something disastrous where you like had an Oh shit moment and how did you fix it? And what did you learn from that experience? Uh, well, I recorded a record once and I was uh, producing it and engineering it. We probably spent, three or four months working on it. So a lot of hard work had went into it on everyone's uh, behalf. And right before mixing, the hard drive ate shit and everything was gone. And I didn't have it backed up anywhere. So I was like, okay. And this had happened to me a couple of times and you just like take it to some person and for 150 or 200 bucks, they'd magically get it all back. So I wasn't too stressed out which still wasn't enough to make me back up stuff, I guess. <laughs> anyway, they couldn't get it back to like, okay, out of 300 gigs on this hard drive, we can retrieve uh, four. Oh my God. Okay. So I sent it to like a professional data recovery place and they had told me like, you know, whatever the problem was, they were going to have to send it to the only clean room in Canada and it was going to cost 2000 bucks to get all the stuff back. And that was, would have been like half of the budget for this entire record probably at the time. So I just hid in my room while they restored this stuff to see if they could even get it back and told everyone I had fallen super ill because <laughs> they were like, when's the mixing going to start? And I'm like, I don't know. I haven't left my house. I'm dying. And uh, anyway, we did end up getting it back. But yeah, it cost two grand. Holy and shit. I'm pretty good about backing up stuff at this point. <laughs> Definitely. I'd say you learned your lesson after that one, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck that. Do you have any special tools or tips that you use that's, that have helped you with either the quality of your mixes or the speed of your workflow or anything like that? One thing Michael Brower uh, pointed out to us, like a technique he used, and he got it from, uh, I want to say, is Al Schmidt, is he an engineer? Yep. Okay. He might have got it from him, but I, I, should, you know, I don't know that for sure. But anyway, he's talking about kind of automating vocals and how that can be sort of a daunting task, and you know how to stay focused throughout that. Like, what word needs to be louder? What syllable? Whatever, whatever. And the technique he was taught and and kind of relaying to us was to think think of the vocal as a cork floating in a body of water and as the body of water which is going to be like your music and instrumental track kind of you know rises and falls you want to keep that cork on top of it and he's you know if it's a style where the vocal's really loud maybe you see most of that cork and if it's you know a style where it's buried maybe you only see the top of it but you're trying to ride the vocal just so you kind of consistently see the same amount of that cork floating in the water as it goes up and down. And it's to this day, like the only way I can think about riding a vocal, you know? So it's, yeah, it's it makes really, a lot of sense. Really useful to me. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. It, it definitely helps you kind of visualize where it needs to sit in that mix. Yeah. And if you get to a chorus or a certain part where you're like the vocals just falling back a little bit, it's just, you know, it's a good thing to visualize. It helps me at least. I like that. That's mm-hmm. very cool. So you had also mentioned that you've been doing some mastering lately as well. What made you get into that? I've been doing a little bit of it for for a long time. Like the first record I did the mastering on, I'm sure was something that I had mixed, but I think it was probably Attack in Black, Curve of the Earth, which would have been like 2007 or something. But that was more out of necessity than anything else. It's like, well, we're not going to master this, so I'll just do it myself. Lately, it's been more like, once a week, there's an EP or an LP that I'm mastering, which is fairly significant for me. So, um, I don't know. I really like mastering, and just from coming from a mixer's perspective, I've I've mastered with so many different people, 
a lot of the big people in the States and, and had a chance to kind of hear how they, you know, what impression they made on, on my mix. So I can, you know, just think about what I liked about that or what I didn't like about that and, and kind of choose my own adventure for it, I guess. But, uh, yeah. And, and I, I do like my masters. Like I think they're good on other people's music. So I guess I don't have quite the critical feeling of my mixes that I do when I'm mastering. It's like, yeah, this is good. (laughs) (laughs) Do you typically master your own mixes or do you always send it to someone else? Sometimes usually like pretty often they're sent to someone else. The, the label or artist might have someone that they're working with. And I, I never like, if they have someone they're happy with, I'm not going to be like, no master with me instead. You know, if, you know, I'm all good with that. And, and on my own mixes, like a, a lot of the time it's nice to have someone else, you know, have a fresh perspective and, you know, I miss something or maybe something could be brought up a bit more and have that other person do it. I think is good. Yeah. That's cool. So a lot of people that are listening to this are kind of in the beginning stages of their mixing. And I was curious if you have any advice for someone who's just getting started off with mixing. Keep doing it. You know what I mean? It's it's like a, you have to just practice and keep doing it. You know what I mean? It's it's like a I don't know what to relate. It's like driving a car, or riding a bike. You want to you want to be at the point where you're using compression and EQ and reverb to to get you to a place where you're trying to go, not get too obsessed with what you're doing with those things. At least I think about it that way. So the more the more experience you have using those tools, hopefully the less you can think about them, you know? So I think it's just keep doing it and uh, also listen to a lot of music, listen to a lot of different genres, listen to old music. Like there's such a wide range of influences you can have. And I think the more you have, the better you'll be in, in mixing. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. What about with getting new clients? Like how, how do you go about doing that? It can be hard, man, especially when you're when you're in the beginning stages, you definitely have to hustle harder. And I think, you know, everyone has their different opinion on doing free work, but I think at the beginning it's there's nothing wrong with it. And even I'll I'll offer to do something like on spec if it's a project I, I really like or someone I really want to convince. Yeah, and you're not, you know, at the beginning of mixing, if if you haven't done anything and no one knows you, it's not you're not gonna get paid that much, right? Because you have have something to prove like for me i got people to let me mix their record and you just have to prove yourself really and there's also there's nothing like for the most part mixers are like not young people you know what i mean the super successful ones if you go across the board they're most of them aren't like 25 it's not it's not the same as being an artist it's not the same as being a producer necessarily it's like a i don't think ten thousand hours is like nearly enough (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so be beware that it's a it's a tough one you know it's it just seems like it takes a long time to to truly learn how to mix especially if you're kind of mixing all over the place genre wise so yeah, yeah it makes sense makes a lot of sense we gotta start to wrap up so how can people follow you online right um well i have i don't i never tweet anything so i don't know if it's worthwhile following that you're gonna just watch me like <laughs> talking shit to baseball announcers <laughs> Uh, you can do that at Weston Bread. That's also my Instagram, but I have a, a mastering Instagram as well, which I kind of keep updated with the projects I'm mastering. Um, that one's mastered by Weston. The website is hideously outdated. What else is good? <laughs> I love the domain, though, on your oh, website. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, the website is westonruinmyrecord.com. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, I, you know, there's a picture of me from six years ago being all sad and shit on there. So that's good. And then I have a Facebook group. I should probably get someone to like consolidate my social media presence because it's a goddamn mess. But I don't know. I find that stuff to be like most of my work doesn't come through any of those channels. But, you know, I'm sure it's different for everyone. Or just a lot, a lot of tire kicking on Facebook. For sure. <laughs> How much to mix this track? This much. Oh, can you do it for like 80 bucks? And then I just don't reply. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to put that in if you don't want. Yeah, it's all good. Hey, it's it's realistic if someone wants to reach out to you, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, yeah, any of those ways, the, the website. I don't even know if the website has 
my email on it. But if anyone wants to hit me up, it's dan at westinruinmyrecord.com. Awesome. Any cool projects that you can talk about that you're excited about? Yeah. Um, right now, we're working on Keisha Shante's material. She just put out, I think, a five-song EP, and I mixed the first three tracks on that. Some really cool stuff on that. Um, Mastering-wise, there's, there's two records I just did last week that I'm really excited about, but I don't know if I'm like if people know that those artists are putting out new music or anything, so maybe I'll just yeah, keep it to myself. Uh, other mastering stuff, the new Full Blast stuff they put out we just did. Kevin Gates went platinum, and I got a plaque. That was pretty cool. Amazing. <laughs> like an American one, which is I didn't think was ever coming my way, so that was pretty tight. That's amazing, man. Congrats. Thanks, thanks. Oh, and uh, Tribe Called Red won a Juno for producer of the year, and I mixed that record, so that was that was exciting. That's awesome. Congrats, mm-hmm. man. A lot of good things coming your way. Oh, thanks. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on here, man. I think you shared a lot of really cool advice and cool workflows that I think a lot of people will probably start to try out. Awesome, awesome. That's good to hear. If, uh, yeah, it's if anything helps at all, I'm super happy. Awesome. I appreciate it, man. Yeah. Thanks. Peace. So that was my interview with Dan Weston. Make sure to look him up. He's doing some awesome work these days, and I'm really happy that he was on the show. I think he shared some really great information. So that's it, guys. If this is your first time hearing about Master Your Mix, please check out the website, MasterYourMix.com. And on that website, you can download a free copy of The Ultimate Mixing Blueprint, which is a guide to show you how to use EQ and compression across a variety of instruments in your mixes so that you can get better results faster. Once you download your copy, you'll also be added to my mailing list where every week I send out new video tutorials and tips and tricks to try to help improve your mixes. Also, while you're on the website, feel free to check out that brand new ebook that I talked about at the beginning. It's called 60 Lessons Every Mixing Engineer Must Know, and you can get your copy on the website as well. So that's it for this episode, guys. If you like what you heard, make sure to go on iTunes and leave a rating and a review. By doing that, it allows us to get exposed to a lot more people so that we can spread the word and continue to do this podcast so you can continue to learn. So we'll talk to you soon and see you in the next episode. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.